Welcome into another edition of the Dane and Victory podcast, available on musketeerreport.com and all of your favorite streaming platforms. I am Rick. Dan is on the line, as is the legend, Brian Snow. We come at you the day after Xavier took down number 13, Creighton, 77-69 on Senior Day. And Dan, I just want to start right here because you actually got the chance to go to a game in person for the first time in like a decade. Um, (laughs) What were the vibes like? What was that experience like yesterday? So, yeah, that was the first game I've gone to this year. And I made the decision. I I know I had said back in November when we had that episode with Paul that I probably wouldn't go to a game. But given that my parents and in-laws and wife have all been vaccinated, I kind of felt like, eh, we'll see how it goes. So I did go. Um, You know, it's it. Once the game starts and like the basketball men are doing basketball things, it doesn't feel that different. But it definitely was weird as hell walking into that place and it being so empty. And it's not not just that it felt empty because I've been to high school games and women's games there that have had, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred people there, similar crowd. Um, But they're never as like diffused throughout the entire building as they were. And that's really the weird thing about it. um, The weirdest thing about it. But. I, I will say it was kind of pleasant. I mean, there was no line in the bathroom. Uh, going to the concession stand was really easy. So there were some things to uh, there. There were some parts of the experience that weren't too bad. What but was yeah. it like? What was it like at the end? I mean, this was obviously a huge win. There was a lot of excitement there at the end. If you were a Xavier fan, what was the end of the game like in terms of the atmosphere? Well, I mean, obviously that little, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later. But that little mini run that Creighton um, put together, what with maybe from the four minute mark to the two minute mark kind of put the um, kind of had everybody on, on edge. And there was definitely some tension. Um, but obviously you got those, those three uh, baskets by uh, uh, Kunkel and then Odom and then the, the run out to Fremantle. I mean, everybody that was in there went completely ballistic. Um, I don't know how it came off on TV. I, I didn't get to watch the replay, but um, I mean, it was as good an atmosphere as you could have. It seemed like an intense game. Um for having that small of a crowd um, for good reason. But I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was cool to be there. There were some students that seemed like they had a fair number of students there. So they were bringing some energy and uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I thought there was some crowd noise coming through the TV broadcast. That's why I was kind of interested in hearing what you thought about it. Snow, I'll give you a dealer's choice of where to start here from a basketball perspective. What, what stood out to you the most about this bounce back win? Um, Dewan Odom. Honestly, me too. Um, first of all, if you raise your hand, if you had Dewan Odom from 20 feet being the <laughs> biggest shot of the season for Xavier. <laughs> um, and what a, what a beautiful thing his jumper is. I know our, our, the, the, uh, the lower half it's picture perfect. <laughs> our message board, we have some big fans of Dwan Odom shooting for him. And I have a feeling that's going to be a theme throughout his career, but uh, you got to give him credit. He's knocked down two two jumpers here in the last two games. Yeah, and, you know, he took two threes in the game, one of which was a grenade that he had to shoot. And then the other one was probably one Travis would like him to put in his pocket. Uh, but there was the jumper he made, two threes, and all of them actually looked like they were going in from the TV angle. Now, I don't, you know, sometimes that can be deceiving. But as ugly as it is, he has made strides. But more so than anything, just the fact that what Creighton does is when you can't shoot, they treat you like a third grader. Um, and, you know, they just play two feet in the paint against you. 
And they do that to everybody. It's just what McDermott believes in. And Quentin Gooden's way of solving that problem was just to keep firing from three. Dewan Odom, on the other hand, just was like, well, if you're going to let me get a running start, you're not going to stay in front of me. So I'm going to get all the way to the rim. And that's what he did. And he was tremendous finishing around the rim. And I think Dewan for a freshman deserves a lot of credit because when you get treated like a third grader and you're a really good basketball player, like it messes with your mind. And Dewan didn't let it mess with his mind. And he played as good a game as, as honestly, I think he's played all season. Yeah. I thought the the thing about, what you're talking about there where they're not guarding him is one, he still found a way to be a weapon offensively. He wasn't just an afterthought and a guy who was only going to kick out to shooters at this point. He still found a way to score it. And at the same time, his decision-making was great. I mean, when you've got that much defense in front of you and guys sagging in front of you, it's really easy to make some mistakes and turn the ball over. He goes four assists, one turnover in this game while playing a lot of minutes. To me, that's the biggest thing is for a freshman that you can trust that, okay, even if he's going to try to be aggressive and make some plays and score, he's not going to put you in bad situations and and give up pick six turnovers or live ball turnovers and, and put you in a bad spot. He's just so reliable already with his decision making. Then Rick, can you even remember the turnover? Like, I don't, I, I can't even remember if it was a, you know, like some turnovers, it's like, you know, just a miscommunication. You pass it one way, the guy cuts at the wrong time. I, I don't like recall like a turnover that was like, Dewan, what are you doing? Like Paul had a couple of those, but I, I don't recall Dewan having plays like was that. Was it an offensive really, foul maybe? That's possible. I mean, that would be a turnover, so it's possible it was that. Um, um, yeah, but I, I agree with you guys. And I, I think that, you know, when I was looking at uh, Dewan's stat line for the season, you know, he plays 28 minutes yesterday. He had 31 at Providence during the week. So obviously he's been the guy that's picked up the minutes um, with Nate Johnson uh, uh, being down for the rest of the season with his knee injury. Um, and I thought, I, I thought he was pretty good against Providence. I thought he was really good last night. I agree with you guys, just the level of assurance um as Snow says, you know, the, his ability to he, – he gets a running start. The guy plays the game at 1,000 miles an hour, but he never seems out of control offensively. And he had some really nice finishes. I, I went back and watched the highlight video this morning, um, and he's got a – and there, there's a couple finishes from tight angles that were not easy. And to have a freshman point guard that's able to do that uh, was key. And then also at the other end, I mean – I. Did, did I don't think that he that Zagorowski got the best of him at all uh, at the other end, which is obviously critical for for beating a team like Creighton, because pretty much everything they do starts with that guy. Uh, one of the most talented guards in the Big East, maybe maybe one of the better point guards in the country. And Dewan did not back down from that challenge at all. Yeah, that's what after going back and watching it again last night while I was writing, I, that's the the takeaway I had from that matchup was that I, I don't know if I would say Dwan outplayed him because you know Zagorowski still put up big numbers, had ten assists to go with it, and didn't turn the ball over either. But they looked like peers. I mean, that looked like two big time point guards battling back and forth. And uh, when the game was on the line, Dwan was the one that blocked Zagorowski twice on drives and came up with the big stops. You know, Dwan was the one that had the big finishes and the jumper from the corner late in the game in the final four minutes. So he came up with some really clutch plays in the game too. And that's something he's shown 
really since the start of the season. If you go back to the uh, Xavier Invitational, even he had some big plays down the stretch of those games. So that seems to be kind of a common theme with him. Um, I did just I had synergy pulled up, so I went back and checked. The one turnover was he was driving down the right side, did a little spin move near the free throw line around the 15 minute mark of the first half. And Zagrowski picked him from behind. So it was actually a turnover and not a charge. But yeah, I mean, it's just. He was he was so sure-handed with the ball, and and that's pretty much been the case since he's taken over at the point guard position. Um, we have to talk about Paul Scruggs. He was dominant. I mean, this is as well as he's played all year. He's a good basketball player. You know what the biggest thing was is that I, in the first five or six minutes of the game, uh, X kind of came out and looked a little bit looked a little bit sluggish, and it, it was the situation where if Creighton knocks down a few more shots early on and maybe Xavier isn't able to score, you find yourself in a similar position as they were in with Providence where you're playing from behind. And with this team, especially the way that they've, although they shot the ball better yesterday, the way that they've shot since coming off COVID uh, uh, layoff, uh, you can't come back with twos and trying to get stops with a team that's not particularly great defensively. So the fact that Scruggs was so kind of put the team on his back in the first five, six minutes. I think he had nine of Xavier's first 11 points, I want to say. Um, it was huge because he basically was providing all the offense for the team over the first five, six minutes, keeping them in the game. And then when the rest of the team kind of got into a rhythm and started to, and started to score, he was able to, to take a step back, I guess, for, for the middle section of the game. And then obviously made some big plays down the stretch too. I think the biggest thing was he made that first three and it probably felt like he, for him that he hadn't made a three in two months. And that, for that him to make true. it, <laughs> for him to make it, it probably was just a weight off his shoulders. And then for the rest of the team to see their first three go in of the game had to just be like, Oh my God, thank you. We finally made one. And I, and I, I really think even though it's just one shot at, you know, the beginning of the game, just seeing an open three go in, I think calmed them down a little bit and just probably was like a mental, like, okay, we can actually make a shot now. Yeah, I know that sounds ridiculous, especially at this level of basketball, but to me, the, those wide open ones that they've been missing so consistently over the last three games prior to this, those are the ones that really kill you in a lot of ways because you do everything right. You're taking the perfect shot I mean, and some yeah we can argue maybe Zach Freeman shouldn't shoot five or six pick and pop threes if he's not hitting and the other team's intentionally giving that to him or Jason Carter shouldn't be shooting open threes because their team is trying to get him to shoot those I understand that but I'm talking about your good shooters your Adam Kunkels your Paul Scruggs those types of guys taking wide open threes off of good ball movement or off of a transition opportunity where the other the other team just broke down defensively and when you don't make those that's those are backbreakers. I mean, it's so discouraging from an offensive perspective. And especially if you go wide open three, it should be three points for you. Instead, it's a long rebound and run out the other way and they score. It's like a five point swing right there. Those moments in games just kill you at this level. I mean, you can't miss those opportunities. And snow, you were, you were actually pretty much right. Um, In his previous four games. So uh, dating back to the UConn game, which was the second time they came off COVID pause he had been two for 16 from three in those uh, in those four games. Obviously, three for five last night. He looked good out there. The threes all came, you know, one was the first shot. One was Xavier's first three-point attempt. He hit a three at the beginning of the second half to give Xavier the lead, which they wouldn't relinquish. And then he hit another three at the end of that, um, like, 11-0 run. run that uh, 
that put Xavier in the driver's seat for the rest of the game. So, yeah, I mean, he, the guy just he, – he's a playmaker. And um, sometimes I think when Xavier gets stagnant offensively, sometimes it feels like he tries to play a little too much hero ball. The Providence game maybe was an example. But, um, but in this game, I think he really uh, picked his spots well. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, I almost feel the opposite of that. Um, I feel like at times Paul's issue this year has been that he disappears when this team needs him the most, or he can't figure out how to get to his spots and get in a position to score and help the team when, when they've really needed him the most. I thought last night the thing that was most impressive to me is that his impact was constant throughout the game. You know, whether it was the – the scoring that you talked about with those threes to get the big run going or the massive block he had early in the game on the defensive end at the rim, just constantly throughout the game, he was coming up with big plays and making his presence felt. I feel like at times this year, he has disappeared for long stretches of games. And quite honestly, with the way this team is built and where they're at, they can't have it from him. They just, they were relying on him to be their best player. They need him to play like a, a first team, all big East type guy every night. Yeah, I, I think at times he struggled. I, I see what you and Dan are both saying. Like, I thought against Providence in the second half, he was kind of like, well, crap, no one can make a shot. You know what? It's just got to be me. And he, and, and he did that. And then at other times, it's been like, well, I'm just going to make the right basketball play. You know, I'm going to pass. I'm going to be a ball reversal guy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I think finding that balance has been a little bit of a challenge for him. But overall, he's been really good. Another thing that I want to say that that honestly, I can't believe I'm saying this because it's ridiculous, but this season for everybody, not just for Xavier, for everybody, is such a grind. You, you, you literally wake up every morning not knowing if you're going to be able to play again. You get a, a Q-tip shoved up your nose and, you know, life's, for a college student, life sucks in general because you're not a college student this year. Mm-hmm. Something as simple as like uniform change that, you know, it can juice you up a little bit because it just breaks the monotony. It breaks the BS of the season. And as ridiculous as it sounds, I think them breaking out those uniforms really did help. What did you guys think of the uniforms? I know you guys aren't big. I know you guys are huge fashion guys. So, well, I I was just curious. I, I do not think they were that bad. I never really had that big of an issue since they were released. I mean, I don't love the blue and yellow color scheme but ultimately i thought they were executed fine was that a it was funny. was that an anti-molar shot yeah absolutely yeah okay gotcha i was they watching like, like the end of oklahoma oklahoma state and i like flipped over to the xavier game and honestly i thought creighton was xavier and xavier was Creighton. <laughs> well i mean xavier was wearing blue at home which is odd yeah. um yeah I, th- I thought they looked fine in in person i wasn't i like when they when they were kind of leaked, I was kind of like, that's kind of weird looking. It doesn't feel like a Xavier uniform. I'll say that. I know snow, you and I were texting back and forth because you're not a big running man guy, but um, I just think they're overrated. I mean, like they're fine, but, but like people can all slurpy about them. I'm like, but I think those, are, but, but the, uh, the yellow just didn't feel, it didn't feel like a Xavier uniform to me. Whereas the running man, the other throwback things, they, they look more like Xavier. Um, but, you know, that that well, identity. I mean, no no yeah. one remembers them wearing yellow, right? This was like a really big no. period in the 70s. Is that what I understand? I, I guess. I mean, I, I had never. Man, you don't remember? <laughs> Jeez. Come on now. <laughs> I'm old. I'm not that old. 
<laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess it was like a mid seventies thing. Um, probably kind of short lived, but, uh, but yeah, they were fine. Um, I would have been interested to see how they would have done like a home version of that because I think it might've, uh, I think I might've liked that a little bit better, like a, a typical white. white and blue with yellow accents, but, um, but yeah, it was fine. And I'll say this now, Travis Steele's not as anal retentive about that stuff as like Sean Miller would be, who would, you know, know like their uniform combination and like, when's the last time they won in one and lost in it. And, you know, you can't break it up. So Travis isn't to that extent, but I, I don't think that'll be the only time they wear those uniforms this year. Hmm. Yeah. They sent out a tweet saying one night only with a question mark. So, I mean, you get, you win a game like that with as superstitious as these nut jobs are, there's, there's a good yeah. chance that they're, they're breaking those back out. I would assume. I wouldn't and be at the end of the day, if they like, wear them at Georgetown. Neither would I like the players like them. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you or I or some other 80-year-old person does or doesn't like them. The players like them. That's all that matters. It would be weird if they wore them at Marquette because those are Marquette's colors. So it would be uh, – I would have zero strange. chance of figuring out who was who. Yeah, so so that was interesting. Another thing I was going to ask you guys about um, the was the um, – so we did get there and we saw the senior night um, – ceremony which you know is always is always a nice thing every year um but all the seniors did walk which you would expect but obviously with covid all those guys have the opportunity to come back next year and so i i don't know do you do you guys i it's way too early to say obviously but should we read into the fact that all those guys participated in senior night last night that none of them will be back or is there still an opportunity maybe for one or two of those guys to stick around Oh, there, there's an opportunity. Um, I can tell you for sure, at least three of them have not made up their mind. Now, that doesn't mean they're leaning towards coming back. It just means it's kind of like, yeah, you know, we'll see. Um, I've been told like seniors around the league are all communicating with each other. Like, hey, are you thinking of coming back? Are you thinking of coming back? Because I don't think anyone wants to be like the only guy coming back. Um. <laughs> Like, as silly as that sounds, like, you know, it's like, am I really going to be the only f super senior coming back to this deal? Like, that, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to be the old guy at the frat party. Yeah, and that's not yeah. silly at all. That sounds like exactly how every decision is made at that age. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, you crowdsource everything at that age. You don't want to be the only one doing it. I mean, like, ultimately, I, I just, and I have no insight into Paul's thinking. Ultimately, I just can't see Paul Scruggs coming back knowing Paul Scruggs. I really can't, but that doesn't mean he won't. It just means I can't like, it just would, it would totally surprise me just given that kid's history. And I don't say that in a negative way. I mean, I didn't want to be in college for five years and I don't imagine he does either, especially because they actually make you go to class, which sucks. One, one of the other uh, questions I've seen a decent amount, Brian, since we found out Nate Johnson would be out for the rest of the season is does that impact his thinking at all in your opinion? I've been told from the beginning, Nate was the least likely to come back. So for me, it, it wouldn't. But again, I've had two conversations with Nate Johnson in my life. One of which, which was you committed to Xavier. Tell me why I like the coaches. Sounds good, <laughs> Nate. Good talk. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, but it is interesting that there's like, I mean, that, that with Scruggs, it's not a totally 
it's not a the possibility is not completely foreclosed that he could come back, which I think is more probably than anyone would have expected. You know, yeah, I mean, like even if it's two percent, that's two percent more than I would have expected the chance to be. So I would expect if you're making me guess, my guess is only Brian Griffin returns. That'd be my guess, but I, you know, they're living in the moment right now. You know, what's going to happen when on April 15th or something like that, when you're not playing basketball, you're still going to class and reality hits you like, do I really want to do this crap again? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, Travis Steele right now is preaching to these guys, like be in the moment. Don't be thinking about what's next. He's trying to keep guys from looking ahead and focusing on, what their next stop might be. And, and so there's, you know, there's, it's kind of hard to get a great read on things, but I do think it's fair to say, we're not like saying too much to, that Paul Scruggs has questioned this in the last, I mean, it's, it's not yeah. like it's a foregone conclusion at all. He's definitely considering this right now. And it's, it's, it's something that I think he'll continue to look at through the end of the season and into the off season. Sure. Yeah. I just think like the more, the further you get away from actually playing basketball, the harder it is in your mind to be like, yeah, I want to do this again. Agreed. Yeah. Especially when you do have some type of uh, professional prospects. I don't know that yeah, it's I mean, in the NBA, but he's going to play somewhere. Whether it's a two-way guy, whether it's making six figures in Europe, whatever it may be, like he's going to make real money playing basketball in his life. Yeah. And, and the question is, do you want to delay that another year? I mean, if he does have, aspirations down the road like a like a Sumner arc where he or, or like Samaje who you know ended up getting his cup of coffee in the NBA and hung around for a couple of years I mean if he wants to do that it probably behooves him to start his professional career sooner rather than later um, but you never know I mean I I could I personally could see if I was a if I had kind of built up to my senior year and my senior year of college was as, as Brian says, as miserable as it probably was for kids this year. I, I, I'd, I'd think about it. I mean, this isn't just Brian Snow staying another year at Ohio state to get football tickets. I mean, this is a, uh, that was a good plan by the way. It was, I, I look, I don't, I don't hate that decision. Um, but I, I will say Brian Snow had a lot more to stay for. You know, I mean, there's like there's more upside when Paul leaves than there was for Brian Snow. He wasn't really leaving for any reasons. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't going to be handed a big check. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you That's know, the, true. The powers that be at Rivals weren't wondering like, man, if Snow stays next year, I just don't know if we can go on him. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> He's going to be too old at that point. I will say Paul's benefits to being in college are also far greater than mine were. <laughs> but that's true too. It's true too. <laughs> All right. Uh, one one more thing from the game. I, I did. I read about this a little bit, and I thought it was another thing that after the game ends, I just couldn't get out of my mind. Is as much talk as there's been about the coaching staff and Travis's future and everything. Like last night, you saw what the staff is building towards and what a solid young core they could have in place. And, you know, I mean, we've talked a lot about Cesar Edwards and Elijah Tucker coming in next year. If either one of those guys and potentially even both the way they talk about them find any traction early on, I mean, you're to the point where you've got four or five guys that are all young that you've recruited as the staff together that give you a chance to be really good. And that's not including transfers like Ben Stanley and Adam Kunkel to add in the mix too. So, I mean, they've got, a bunch of guys were going to be here for a few more years, presumably. 
uh, at least they, they're allowed to be here for a few more years and that all look pretty talented that they've recruited. I, I think that things are kind of moving in the right direction in that regard. Yeah. And yeah, I think like, Wilcher, I think I, I, I would have liked, I guess if I had one, um, if I, if I had one bone to pick a little bit with the, the rotation over the last few games, it's that I would probably, ha- I, I would want more, CJ Wilcher out there. Um, I understand there are reasons why he's not getting minutes. I understand that Travis has a lot of trust in Jason Carter, especially on the defensive end. Um, And, you know, obviously that's been a subject that's been hashed out quite a bit, but, um, but I I would like to see a little bit more CJ Wilcher, but I got to say as much as we talked about coming into the season about the potential of Colby Jones he has exceeded, I think, I, and it's not just production necessarily. It's just I, his feel is just unbelievable for being a freshman, uh, for being a guy that, you know, wasn't that hyped coming out of, uh, of uh, grassroots basketball. His feel is just outstanding. And when you guys compare him to, you know, a Josh Hart or something like that, I see it. I mean, he looks like a Villanova player. Yep. I mean, He's really good. And in reality, what you're looking at is Adam Kunkel's a sophomore. You can put him in the sophomore class. So you're looking at Fremantle and Kunkel as sophomores, the three freshmen, you know, the two freshmen incoming, Ben Stanley, uh, you know, if Griffin comes back. And then you don't know what you have in Deontay Miles, but I do know the staff really does have hopes for him. Who knows what will work out there. you, You see what they've been building. And then if they can add another piece to the puzzle, you know, and a veteran guy, but yeah, the, you've got Fremantle and Colby and Dewan especially who, who are at least showing all league potential. I mean, Fremantle's probably there already. Is there a better, there might not be a better freshman in the league right now than Colby, quite honestly, in terms of how he's playing, take the Providence game away. Cause he was dreadful, but he, he looks as good as any freshman in the league right now. Brian, while you were running through the names there, you left a name out that I think everyone is going to notice and ask about. So I'll bring it up. What uh, you didn't say, Kiki Tandy, is that on purpose or were you just kind of skinny? Is he playing well? No, I was just curious. I mean, when you were talking about the future, uh, you mentioned you don't know what you have in Deontay Miles and you didn't say anything about Kiki Tandy. So I I was wondering if you were trying to infer something there by saying that. there, There was no inference other than Kiki's just not playing very well. Right, right. So I, I would agree. Put him in that mix. Although I will say, last night was the first time I and I've know people have been clamoring nonstop that he should be getting more minutes, and I never understood it. Like he'd come in games, he'd take a bad shot or two, he'd turn the ball over right away, and he was bad on defense. I don't really understand why the coaching staff is supposed to play him more minutes at that point. However, last night he didn't make his two shots, and so I, I don't know that you needed to play him a bunch more minutes because it's not like he was coming and giving you the instant offense that you'd be looking for from him. But in terms of the rest of his game while he was on the court, I thought defensively he actually pressured the ball a little bit. He was in spots. He didn't get beat. He, he boxed out. He fought for rebounds. And on the offensive end, I actually saw him pass the ball. Like he had an assist yeah. on that one three. He caught the ball and moved it. He wasn't a black hole and, and he wasn't getting tunnel vision. He looked like a functional basketball player that you'd be okay leaving out on the court 
for a few minutes each half if you needed to. And to me, he hasn't been that guy to this point. So I do think he's trying. I do think, you know, what Travis has been saying about him, giving a more concerted effort on, on the defensive end and trying to do the things they're asking isn't just lip service. I do believe that after, especially what we saw last night. But yeah, I mean, he's just not playing all that well right now but I agree with you on the CJ Wilcher thing Dan to me that was the argument when everyone's been saying talking about the rotations and who should be playing more minutes to me the obvious thing there was CJ Wilcher looked like a guy who is trying to do everything right he obviously has some limitations on the defensive end but at least he's giving you good effort and he for the most part seems like he knows where he's supposed to be on that end of the floor uh, I, I would have thought he had been he had earned some more minutes prior to last night, and I thought last night they they executed that really well with playing Jason Carter just 22 minutes, giving C.J. Wilcher 10. I was a little surprised that they played Brian Griffin and Zach Fremantle together as much as they did. That was kind of a wrinkle that I didn't expect against Creighton, but it all worked out. Um, and and like we can be real, like coaches can get rattled. I think that St. John's rattled Travis a little bit. And when you watch that as a coach, even though Travis, like, he's not as like, you know, like Mick Cronin, like it's all about defense. Even if you score 40 points, you know, your defense is the problem because you didn't win that. That's not Travis. But when you watch Seton Hall, just, or excuse me, St. John's just dice you time after time after time as a coach, it can mess you up. And I think he kind of overcorrected a little bit and Yesterday, he kind of found, I think he found that balance a little bit more in terms of, okay, like we're not going to shut out Creighton. So let, let, let's sacrifice, let's understand that, you know, maybe a bad play is going to come from CJ or a bad play is going to come from Kiki or a bad play is going to come from Kunkel, but I have to live with it and just accept some reality that, you know, they're not going to be perfect and you, you know, for lack of a better term, swallow a few bad, bad defensive plays and then take, you know, take the offense where you can get it. My problem with the Providence game was even though Xavier was scoring in half, they weren't getting a stop. So if your best defenders aren't getting stops, what's the harm in trying the better offensive players? Right. So then maybe you're making threes instead of twos. So I, I think Travis kind of recalibrated yesterday and, and that, that's okay. Like, you know, like Tom Izzo had a year with Jaron Jackson and Miles Bridges and all those guys where he could never figure out his rotations. And everyone thought they were like the preseason number one team in the country. And they got smacked in the second round of the tournament. And Michigan State never really looked that good all year because Izzo, who's as good a coach as there is in college basketball, just couldn't figure it out. You know, it happens. And, and Travis, I think for a game and a half, two games, just was a little messed up. Well, you are kind of in a catch-22 as a coach, too, when you're going to say, okay, clearly that effort defensively against St. John's isn't going to cut it. You've got to get that defensive effort back, the, the toughness, the energy, all that stuff. So you're going to preach that, but then you're going to go out and play guys who don't give you that? I mean, that it is a tough spot to be in as a coach. If you're going to preach we got to be better defensively, then it do, does kind of make you feel like you got to play the guys who are better defensively, at least for that next game. So I get being in a tough spot there, but to your point, Brian, I think in the second half of the Providence game, when you had fallen behind by double digits anyway, and you weren't getting any stops, that's the time where maybe you, you can't be quite as stubborn as a coach and you just have to look at it and say, I got to try something else. Even if we go down, I got to go down swinging here because this, this group isn't giving us a chance. Yeah. In the Providence game, I mean, you, 
there was some elite shot making happening from Providence in that, in that game, especially in the second half. And that, that has to be, and when you've got guys splashing threes from the logo a couple times a half, I mean, that's got to be demoralizing too. You play a really good defensive position and then David Duke lights you up from 28 feet. I mean, <laughs> and heck, you'll take David Duke doing it when Nate Watson hits an 18 footer on you. And when Bynum, Bynum hits, hits two of them. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. that's what deflates you. Like, Jesus, we got literally everything we want. Right. And I, I, that was a, that was a damaging loss for Xavier. No doubt. Um, I, I, I don't think I like the St. John's game. I think we would all agree was, was a train wreck. I, I don't think the Providence game was a train wreck. I think that was two pretty evenly matched teams. And it was just a day where Providence made shots and Xavier couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. Um, and I, I think, and I don't know, you know, maybe it was that I know they were playing in that, that ancient gym, uh, that Providence's old on campus facility. I don't think there were any fans there. It was probably just a very strange atmosphere. Um, and, uh, and, and that one, I kind of, I kind of look at that and I'm not like super heartbroken about that game, you know, in the cold light of day, because I did think that Xavier played badly in the first half, but I thought they came out in the second half with a lot of energy in that game. They just couldn't get over the hump. And I think they carried that level of energy into the Creighton game. And obviously it, it, they, they, you know, they, they got the dividends from it against Creighton where against Providence, they just, they just couldn't stack together enough good possessions and they couldn't keep Providence from, you know, hitting crazy shots at times. I'll say this, even though it hasn't been pretty coming off this latest COVID palooza, uh, I don't think it's been an energy. I don't think it's been a toughness issue. I think it's just been an execution and like, they're out of shape. Like, let's just call it what it is. And it's no one's fault. They're way out of shape. And that's going to happen when you play one game in a month. And I think they're starting to get their legs back, but I think they've been giving effort and playing hard. I just think their execution on both ends has been really bad. And part of that's understandable. I hate to make excuses because if you're out there, at the end of the day, if you're playing, you have to play well. That's the way the sport works. But sometimes there's reasons why you don't. And Xavier had a pretty damn good reason why they haven't looked great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you can, I, I think that you can, uh, you can folk, you, you have to focus on results because that's, as you say, that's the point. But, um, but you can look at the, you can look at a performance and you, you can factor those things in. They're not necessarily excuses. It's just reality. Yeah. yeah it almost felt like in that Providence game to your guys' point that I agree that I thought they were trying hard. But it's almost like, okay, I'm going to try even harder. I'm so locked in on my guy. And uh, and, now I didn't recognize my rotation on a ball screen coverage. And, you know, I mean, the way they were getting killed on some of their their breakdowns in the second half of that game, even when I thought they were giving good effort and they were finding a little bit of rhythm offensively, they were being aggressive and and doing the things you want to see them do. Then they'd still have these breakdowns where, like you said, Ryan, they're just not executing. And it's not for a lack of not trying, but it's, you know, it, sometimes it's a freshman not not recognizing something quick enough, or sometimes it's even one of your veterans just not communicating something properly. They just, for whatever reason, couldn't get right on, on that end. And uh, sometimes it's that way. I think the I mean, layoff certainly has a lot to do with it. The, like the first war, I keep coming back to this because it just, it, it just exemplified the problem that they were having against Providence was the first war of the second half, they played really well. And I think they outscored Providence by one point in that war. 
And that's, I mean, that's where in a game like that, where you're chasing, where you're down 10 points at halftime, you know, when you play well, there's always going to be these, these ups and downs in a game. When you play well, you got to make, you got to make the most of that. Right. And it would not have been unfair given the way Xavier played in that war to outscore Providence by eight points and get the game back basically on level terms, but they couldn't get the stops. They had breakdowns, a three goes in and all of a sudden, you know, you've kind of, your chance has kind of gone by the boards um, against Creighton. I I'm, I'm curious to, to for you guys, cause it, it seemed like the um, it seemed like offensively Xavier was a lot crisper against Creighton than they've been in the other games since the layoff. And I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on why that was, because they didn't really shoot the lights out in the Creighton game. I mean, there were seven for 21 from three, but it just seemed like the ball rotation was a lot better. It seemed like their, their shot selection was a little bit better. And obviously they made the most of opportunities when they came about. I'm going to disagree. I think Providence, they didn't have great shots. I thought they shots, but not great ones. The other game since the COVID pause, I think they've been getting every shot they've wanted. They just really haven't made them. Yeah. Granted, two like, of those Nate games Johns, were against a Butler team that was, you know, yeah, not very good. But Like, I don't think they could get run better offense or get more open shots than what they had against St. John's. They should have scored 124 points in that game. I mean, but you're right, though. But, like, to, to, Dan, to your point, though, about them not getting the bounces or things just not quite going their way, if you take – they made, what, three threes, I think, in that game against Providence, they definitely had more than another four or five that were wide open. If they hit seven threes in that game against Providence and you add you know, four of the wide open ones that missed, now all of a sudden that segment that you talked about where they only take a, a one-point advantage against – Providence that it becomes a six or seven point advantage if you make a couple wide open threes during those segments when they were playing well they just haven't gotten those bounces for the last few games for whatever reason maybe part of its legs and fatigue maybe part of it's just they were in a shooting funk which we've seen a few times from them this year I I guess kind of my big question for you guys is do you think they're good now do you think it's uh they're kind of past it or do you think this is a one game aberration when they really needed it I think there was an element of a back-to-the-wall performance yesterday. But that doesn't mean that it won't be the same on Tuesday night or Wednesday night, whenever the Georgetown game is. Um, I don't know. But that that does kind of bring us into the big-picture conversation, which is, you know, where they are and what they need to do over the next 10 or 11 days in order to get in the NCAA tournament. I think they definitely need to beat Georgetown. It's not much to ask to go to Georgetown and win. If you're a tournament team, that's a game you should win. And then Marquette, it would be a highly recommended win. If they get both of them, they're in. They get one, you're sweating on Selection Sunday if you lose to, say, Seton Hall in the first round of the tournament. Right. And it seems but, pretty likely that's who they're going to play. I mean, it, it Xavier's almost locked into that 4-5 game and almost certainly would play Seton Hall, right? I believe so. Although Seton Hall, if you can figure them out, best of luck to you. Yeah, I don't. Does does UConn still have a chance to get in there? It, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You, I know UConn and Seton Hall play each other, and as of now, I'm going to bet on UConn, which I think would put UConn into the three spot. As of right now, UConn is third at nine and six. Seton Hall fourth at 10 and seven Xavier at six and five is fifth. So it would be Seton Hall then likely assuming and they don't 
take UConn spot. Yeah, and I, I mean, Providence and St. John's, if they, they – yeah, I mean, everybody's got two games left, I guess. Providence plays St. John's, so that's going to knock one of those teams probably out of contention for that. But, yeah, I mean, I as I look at this, I think the difficulty is – and, you know, we talked about this the last time we recorded, which seems like – which was like a month ago. But it seems – it's it, I, nothing has changed in my mind in terms of we just don't know how uh, – how the selection committee is going to judge a team that's going to have 20 games, right? Or 21 games. And Xavier's at the forefront of that discussion. They're right on the bubble and they've got that weird resume. So, I mean, yeah, they are, they are going to be kind of the, uh, I don't know if it's a guinea pig because we're not going to keep doing this going forward ever again, but I hope not. Yeah. They are a team that we'll, we'll get our answers from in a lot of ways in terms of how they're going to handle that type of resume. I think what Xavier's resume has become is no bad loss resume. Right. I mean, that's that's yeah. their advantage over the other teams on the bubble is they haven't taken that bad loss. They haven't taken a bad loss and they do have two legit good wins. And um, I think and I but I think that goes back uh, snow to what you're saying about the Georgetown game. I mean, that's one they've got to have, because even though Georgetown isn't a bad team, um, that it's would a game be, you win. if you're yeah. a tournament team, you beat Georgetown. I mean, I agree, but I just wonder how closely, like, I think there is a, a definite difference between Georgetown and Marquette, but in terms of the net, they're like five spots or six spots apart. So I wonder how much does the committee, you know, get granular in that and, and separating those two games? Like, it doesn't matter. Do you just need one? I mean, obviously, you'd much, you'd much rather just win both of them, and then I think you're definitely in. If you, if, you, if you go one and one, then, yeah, there's going to be some sweating on Selection Sunday just because we don't know what they're what they're going to do with Xavier. But I, I do think if you win one or the other, you still have a, a good shot of getting in. Yeah, I agree. But we'll, we'll have to see. Um, obviously, it's they've got legit good wins. They got no bad losses. They just don't have a lot of wins or a lot of good wins. Uh, so it's going to be a unique resume. Um, getting a few getting a few road wins. I mean, they did win at Hinkle Fieldhouse, which is now apparently impossible to win at. Uh <laughs> But getting a getting another like a top one hundred road win when that would be recommended. Yeah, and, and just to update, Marquette is 89th in the net and Georgetown is ninety-sixth. So Yeah. I mean yeah. they're both kind of the same type of game based on the net. Butler, uh although they have struggled and obviously they've they've probably next to Xavier suffered the most with COVID over the course of the season in the conference. I mean, they are they I I they mentioned toward the end of the uh, Villanova game today that they're actually six and three at home in Big East play, which surprised me a little bit. Um, so that has not been the easiest place in the world to win this year. No. And like, if you take out their loss to Southern Illinois, which like, let's be honest, they, they were a mess. Like if you think Xavier, like they literally had like double what Xavier had. Now they had it all at once, which is a benefit. But, like, theirs was an absolute mess of a shutdown. Like, you take away that loss, and they're they're looking like a totally different team in mm. terms of who they've beaten and who they've lost to. I mean, they've beaten Seton Hall and, and Villanova back-to-back at home. So, Well, that's an interesting point and something I've been asked about, and I'd be interested to get your opinion because people have asked me, you know, will the committee take – 
those COVID layoffs into consideration, sort of like if you played a game with a guy injured, uh, they've started doing that. They might not factor that loss as much if you had a star player out, for instance. Will they do that if you were coming off a long layoff from COVID this year? And my response has been no, just because that adds so much more complexity, work, detail, yeah, I mean, and complexity to the calculation there. I just don't know how you could possibly do it and, and equate things because for each team, it's been different. It, it basically would force an almost like meta analysis of every single game on the schedule. And I just don't think that they're going to do that for, you know, the 90 teams or whatever that are going to be in the, in the conversation or the 80 teams that are going to be in the conversation. I think Um, they'll have that information. They'll be aware of it, but where it gets tricky is like, okay, so you want to take, you want to take that into account for, for Xavier. Does that mean you diminish UConn winning at Xavier? I don't necessarily think that's fair to UConn. No. Right. No. Well, and also, I mean, but it just, but it adds, there's already this, un, but I mean, we go back to the Xavier resume. I mean, you, every aspect of Xavier's resume is affected by this, by the COVID layoffs. They did not play Villanova that this year. That hurts their, uh, their strength of schedule. It also deprives them of, I mean, let's be honest. Xavier winning at Villanova is is not a likely event to occur in my lifetime, but Xavier has <laughs> beaten Villanova a couple times at home, and um, and Villanova certainly is not invincible, and that would have been an opportunity again for Xavier to rack up a nice win if they'd have had that opportunity. They didn't. They didn't have the opportunity to get two, hopefully two wins over DePaul either. Um, so. Th- I mean, the, that's the that's the tough thing with Xavier's uh, with Xavier's resume because of the uh, because of the the limited number of games. It's it's weird. I don't and I don't like we can crap on Lenardi or, or Palm or whoever. But at the end of the day, like. I don't know how you evaluate Xavier's resume. I really don't. And I don't think they have any idea how to do it either. Yeah, I, they are going to get punished for COVID. There's no way around it. I mean, you can't give them credit for something that they didn't do. So the fact that they didn't get these opportunities and you know they do have fewer wins, they are going to get punished for. That's just the unfortunate nature of this season. The question is, uh, you know, is there any curve given? You know, when they're when they're looking at this, and I, I just don't think that's going to be the case really in that regard. I think there could be some. I do. Um, I think there will be some consideration given. It's just a matter of how much. Yeah. And again, I think that's why if you're Xavier, the the no bad loss thing is going to be your selling point. That's going to be the thing they can look to and kind of project out like, look, you, you give this team a full schedule of games, they weren't losing to bad teams. You know, I mean, that that's yeah. kind of the best argument you have for Xavier at this point, I think. Right, right. So let's talk about Georgetown a little bit because obviously this is a, uh, a team that, this will be the first meeting between the teams. I mean, how do you guys assess Georgetown? What's the challenge that Xavier's going to have in that game? Uh, keeping Georgetown off the offensive glass. Now, Xavier's done a fantastic job of that, to be perfectly honest. they Outside of, I think, maybe one or two games, they, they've been tremendous. Looking at the league, Xavier's the best defensive rebounding team in the Big East, which I would not have bet on coming into the year. Mm-hmm. Now, they're the worst offensive rebounding team, which I probably would have bet on. But Georgetown's the second best offensive rebounding team in the Big East and oddly shooting a very high percentage from three. 
but they don't shoot well from two. But it, you got to keep Georgetown off the offensive glass, and I think if they do, they're they're going to beat Georgetown. Actually, leading the Big East in three point percentage at thirty seven point three percent, which yeah. yeah, and they shoot a lot of them too. It's not like it's like some weird yeah. stat because they're not shooting a lot or something. It's yeah, they they rely on the three pretty heavily, so that'll be a concern for Xavier, obviously. But the good thing is, in terms of matching up on the perimeter. Georgetown plays a few more bigs, so it's it's a little bit easier for Xavier to match up with what they have on the perimeter. It's not like you know the situation that uh, Creighton's putting you in, or even Providence did with Horkler, where they're they're doing a ton of, of picking and popping with with big men. I mean, Pickett Pickett can shoot it as like a forward a little bit, but other than that, it's mostly you got to guard their perimeter players. And and they'll switch Pickett stuff. I, the problem they ran into with Providence, and I know why Xavier. Xavier was scared of Nate Watson killing them on the block. So what they did is they started with Carter on Watson because he's much better defending Watson than Fremantle is. Well, when you have Fremantle defending the four, you're not going to switch your four. And that created pick and pops for Horkler. And Horkler beat them. Like, give the kid credit. He beat them. But that was the risk Xavier was willing to take. They wanted Horkler to beat them instead of Watson to beat them. Um, I think with, with Georgetown – they're going to keep Fremantle on the, the five man and keep Carter on the four man, which means they'll switch one through four because you can switch Carter's stuff. Yeah. And the and, interesting thing was it wasn't always the pick and pop though, even in that province game, sometimes Horkler was just the shooter that they were bringing out on the, on, for the throwback. But the problem is Fremantle was still getting strung out so damn far when he was hedging those ball screens. He wasn't ever able to turn the ball back and keep it on one side of the floor. He was, ending up on the opposite side of the floor and then having to sprint 30 feet back. Yeah. And part of that's unique because of how good of a shooter Duke is. They really haven't defended much that way this year. No. And they didn't against, they didn't uh, against Creighton at all. And it worked out yeah. much better. Um, I think they might've overthought it a little bit. You can make that argument. I, I know where they were coming from. It just didn't work. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I, that, that's where I think you, sometimes you get a little too stubborn in what you're trying to do. It's like, Hey, they're killing us with the same action over and over again. We know it's one of the things that can be exploited with the way we defend. Why wouldn't you just start switching that different? And I, I know they did at one point. They switched, put Carter on a uh, Horkler, and they did try to switch it, and they still screwed that up. But yeah, I was a little surprised they didn't change their coverages in that game. So, but yeah, in terms of Georgetown, keeping them off the offensive glass, making them shoot twos, you know, just you know, make Quidus Wahab score over you. Uh, you know, like he's a fine big man, but if you stay between him and the rim, he's going to struggle, you know, and then just not giving guys like Donald Carey, you know, wide open in rhythm threes. They're very, very beatable. And pretty much every time, every lineup that they put out there, there's either someone for Wiltshire or um, Kunkel to guard. Yeah. So that makes Xavier's rotations easier. And, you know, now you got to execute it. You got to do your deal. But it, it's a game that sets up well for Xavier. Doesn't mean they're going to win, but it sets up well. Yeah, that's kind of my thoughts is that there's just good matchups on both ends of the floor. Georgetown has a few weak links. They're not great offensively or defensively. So I just think matchup wise, Xavier should be in pretty good shape in this one, uh, assuming they clear the defensive glass like Snow said. I think that's it, unless you guys got anything else. No, this has been a weirdly uh, basketball forward edition of the podcast. There's been very little nonsense. Well done, guys. Yeah, maybe uh, Sunday at 2 p.m. is our sweet spot. 
<laughs> Everyone's sober, well rested. I think All that right. does it for this edition of the podcast. For Dan and the legend, Brian Snow, you've been listening to another edition of the Dane Victory podcast available on musketeerreport.com and your favorite streaming platforms. I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.